This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stunevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Lots of virus headlines, and let's talk about some, especially as we wait, uh, hearing from uh, President Joe Biden. He is planning to issue a sweeping set of uh, executive orders to tackle the COVID-19 pandemic, really kind of wrap, ramping up his efforts, uh, Tim. But I think the nation is looking for this at this point. Yeah, look, what the United States hasn't had is a sort of centralized response to this, whether it was in the beginning with testing, with personal protective equipment, or uh, toward the end of the Trump administration with the rollout of vaccine. A lot of that has been left to the states. Uh, Biden, though, mm-hmm. today is set to invoke orders would overhaul and unify the U.S. approach to testing. He's going to use federal powers to stabilize the supply chain with the Defense Production Act and critical medical supplies and boost the government's ability to provide rapid and equitable vaccine distribution. That's according to our reporters in a Biden administration briefing. And his COVID-19 task force coordinator, Joe Biden's, said uh, that what we're inheriting is so much worse than we could have imagined. But he did say that the team is confident that Biden's promise to immunize 100 million people in 100 days could be achieved. So uh, that is kind of our backdrop here. And this is on a day where we've got cases exceeding 90 97 million deaths surpassing 2 million more than 54.3 million shots have been given worldwide and i have to say the year ahead issue of bloomberg business week it's covering everything the major trends the companies the things that you need to be thinking about but so much is contingent on what happens in terms of covid and getting our, our arms around it and getting it under control on the front lines of COVID-19 is Alyssa Rapp. She's been one of the voices we've talked to many times over the past year. She's CEO of the healthcare solutions company, Surgical Solutions. She joins us once again on the phone from Deerfield, Illinois. Alyssa, good to have you back with us. How are we? How are we doing? What are you seeing uh, in terms of your team when it comes to COVID and also the vaccine rollout? Uh, Caroline, thanks for having me back. I have to say that I am heartened that the president-elect and uh, or president, we should say now. I think we have a little technical problem, so hopefully uh, we'll see what's going on with Alyssa's line. We'll come yeah, while we're working to get get her back, I do want to go through some of these other executive orders from sure, the Biden administration. Because again, Carol, as you and I have been talking about, uh, not just today, but for the past few days, I mean, the, what the Biden administration is doing is mm-hmm. making the pandemic and the response to the pandemic a clear priority right. from day one. Um, a couple interesting developments here. One of those is the United States joining COVAX. Right. And that's the international organization that works on vaccines. And also going back into the World Health Organization, what Dr. Anthony Fauci talked about uh, just yesterday. Right, exactly. Being part of the global effort to get this under control and in getting it under control here. Also, we're going to expect it to hear uh, the president talk about invo- invoking the Defense Production Act to really get supplies up. Let's, I think we've got the technologies. As I said, we're leaning in. There's something in the air. Alyssa Rapp is with us, uh, CEO of Surgical Solutions, once again on the phone from Deerfield, Illinois. Um, Alyssa, so let's pick it up. Um, What are you seeing? Tell me kind of what's front of mind when it comes to COVID and the vaccine rollout. Yeah, Carol Anson, thank you for having me back. I am absolutely seeing more vaccine availability, and our frontline healthcare workers in places like Houston and New York City are getting access to getting the vaccine, which is great. And I've known from personal anecdotes that family members, 75 and up, are also getting their first shot this week and next, which is across many states. However, 
there's still a lot of bureaucracy and red tape. And what we've seen even at a couple of our hospital sites is even if you're a credentialed employee or contractor, even if you have a vaccine appointment, now there's a third database that people are expected to be tracked in when their vaccines are given. And if any technical difficulties like we just had occur and a, and a database doesn't map from the employee contractor database to the separate vaccine tracking database, even if you have an appointment and are a bona fide employee or contractor, you can't always get the shot. And so there's mm. just a lot of bureaucracy and there's got to be a streamlined way we continue to immunize or we will never achieve 100 million in 100 days. Oh, that's just disconcerting to hear. Are there places um, where your frontline staff are that are better than others? You know, I think that we've seen it be rolled out successfully in all places, and we've seen bureaucracy in all places. We have 300 uh, employees in nine states, so it's really a facility-by-facility or system-by-system question, to be fair. But I will say the places I am most optimistic about having a partner to our federal government and our, our, our people, our American public, right. if we can partner with CVS, Walmart, Costco, mm-hmm. Walgreens, name that tune, and go to places where people are used to getting flu shots, where they're used to shopping on a regular basis, leverage the military It's like support. you've read Business Week magazine, Alyssa, because they <laughs> d- they have a story that's just specifically about that, that maybe, yeah. you know, the success in terms of getting that vaccine rollout is contingent on relying on the big pharmacies, but even your local pharmacy, like they need to be the place to go. Absolutely. I, I even read recently this week that the governor of Washington state is going to partner with Starbucks. I mean, anything we can do to leverage existing infrastructure, because when we create new infrastructure, even in healthcare facilities, let alone anywhere else, it's expensive, bureaucratic and cumbersome. Leverage what we have, keep things moving as quickly as possible and get it done. Herd immunity being obviously the goal here. Um, you know, it, it really raises the question, Alyssa, why we didn't see earlier on um, public-private partnerships when it comes to a widespread vaccine rollout um, to be discussed on a different day. But I, isn't I, that important? Like, <laughs> like, well, it's interesting that, forgive me, because I just want to jump in, because, yeah. you know, you talk about the bureaucracy and the logistical problems, and I know what maybe Kansas needs versus what New York needs is going to be different. But nonetheless, do you think those are quick fixes? And I don't say quick in that it's easy, but do you think that this new administration approaching it differently can get this quickly under control so that we are seeing the bureaucracy taken out of the systems and the logistical snafus, Alyssa, taken out as well? I'm very hopeful. I'm very, very hopeful. There is an opportunity to hit reset and start sprinting. And if this administration is able to do so, we're going to be much better off. So, Alyssa, you mentioned that you have hundreds of employees in, in nine states, I believe. Um, are, mm-hmm. What's the, the portion of them that have been vaccinated thus far? Because these are frontline workers. It's an excellent question. We have about 23% that have been vaccinated to date, and there's a huge wow. push going now. How you know, I, yeah. tw- I, was th- I was expecting 75, 80%. I know. 23%, that's a really small number. Listen, here, I got an email this morning at one of our biggest facilities where one of our frustrated team members on the COVID listserv said, I'm registered, what I articulated earlier. I'm registered, I have, I'm credentialed, and they don't have me in the third vaccine database. And it's so this whole notion, it's very frustrating. Yes, not for lack of desire. It's, it's we've got to cut through the red tape. Yeah, all right. Um, so if we can cut through the red tape, I mean, so, okay, so how do you see this playing out? I mean, I'm just, Tim and I constantly are like, all right, so when do we get back to normal? Whenever we're talking to mm-hmm. somebody who's a healthcare professional or head of a company like you are that are, are seeing everything play out firsthand, um, what's your expectations based on what we're seeing so far? What's your expectation if things can dramatically change in a positive way? 
If things can dramatically change in a positive way, I see 75 and up having their second shot by President's Day. I'm hopeful that teachers and other essential frontline workers, such as grocery uh, store workers, et cetera, will be having their first, if not second, vaccine by the end of Q1, by the end of March. And I'm really hopeful that Tier 2 and Tier 3, uh, let alone Tier 4, like healthy people in their 30s and 40s, can start getting vaccinated and complete that. Uh, April, May, June, and we can get back to normal come July, August, September. Okay, I'm, o- I'm okay with this timeline. <laughs> you know, you're 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 but still using the you know the numbers 2021, which is good to me. God yeah. bless America. Let's hope so. No, it's listen, and the thing is, I don't know. Do we need to be thinking, Alyssa, that folks, we got to figure this out because this is just going to be the first of probably several, many, perhaps tough viruses that are facing our civilization mm. going forward. Yes, but I also think that the scientists are so brilliant in this country, and we have just done such an extraordinary job coming with a protein-based solve in this particular vaccine that I am actually cautiously optimistic in the innovations and the patents being filed of what, how much more responsive we will be in the future and, and leveraging infrastructure and, and leveraging our great minds in this country to get these solved. But we got to get through this one first. And remember, the, the tests for the vaccines for children are only being tested right now, right. which means we have to also make sure that the children are going to be vaccinated by the fall so we don't have another year of wonky hybrid, let alone all virtual education. So you're saying if we can get through this one, the next pandemic, which you believe could be coming at some point, I mean, we, this is once in 100 years that we saw this, but who knows what the future holds. Um, we learned a lot from this one, and we could start on the vaccines as soon as we are, are able to actually see the new virus, right? I sure would like to think so. I sure would like to think so. Well, and I also do wonder what comes out on the other side of this, Alyssa, in terms of, I know the Bloomberg New Economy Forum, you know, the whole idea of kind of the world working together, although we had not uh, great cooperation on everything, but it certainly felt that way when it came to a vaccine specifically. Like, think about if we can all combine our efforts globally and some of the big health ailments that we are dealing with or some big health care issues, how we could kind of finally solve them. It would, be, it would be awesome. I mean, at the end of the day, when you're talking about solving great global health crises, whether it's COVID or cancer, you're really talking about the best and brightest minds in this country and worldwide needing to come together and thinking about how to create proteins that or other type of structures that can and edit DNA and do things that are really next generation to change people's um, change people's prognosis or susceptibility to getting diseases at all. And that that is, of course, going to require a global partnership on many levels. And I'm hopeful that this new administration will position us well for that, too. You know, what we talked about using the big health, uh, the big drugstore companies, whether it's your CVS, your Walgreens, your Costco's you know, Rite Aid to help with the vaccine, you know, getting the vaccine out. You said, shared with us some notes about the solution isn't to reinvent U.S. healthcare from the ground up, but rather to lean into the things that the U.S. system does well. And that obviously applies to COVID and the vaccine. Totally. But if we look at it bigger and broader, what does the U.S. healthcare system do really, really well? What don't we and that really needs to be fixed? At a meta level, we do innovation extraordinarily and we treat the world's toughest illnesses, best in class, better than anyone. But that's a system designed to treat illness, and the system needs to be designed to incent and support wellness. And telehealth and all sorts of innovations that were accelerated during the pandemic are actually really poised to continue accelerating and their market penetration in the years to come, which is probably good for preventative medicine and good for wellness-based care. But it's that delicate balance. If, if everyone's incentive and makes money in the healthcare system when people are sick, 
then the system itself needs to also re-examine the fundamentals and how do you really make sure you have a system designed to just, keep people healthy. I just want to mention, we are waiting uh, some comments from President Biden and his mm-hmm. team, including Dr. Anthony Fauci, on the virus. There are some headlines crossing um, the Bloomberg, and it does say that uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci says J&J has sufficient enough data on the vaccine, says he suffered brief side effects from his second vaccine Hmm. dose. Uh, Mm -hmm. He's speaking to reporters. We're going to get a playback on that and play it out. He says he expects a million vaccine doses um, to be given a day. You know, it's it's good that, look, I'm glad he he talked about the side effects that he had, brief side effects. Um, If if we remember back to the first first shot that he got, he was so clinical in the way that he was describing uh, the way mm-hmm. it felt clearly <laughs> as a doctor. Yeah. Um, Alyssa, I want to I want to ask you about how you would advise policymakers in Washington right now about reforming health care. I mean, it's it's difficult for, to think about a question that big uh, when we are in the midst of a pandemic. But as as you just mentioned, uh, the healthcare system in the country is broken. You have experience in the healthcare industry. Uh, how would you advise policymakers to tackle it? I really believe in this concept of kid care. I believe any child in this country, no matter to whom you're born and where you're born, should have access to tremendous preventative health and medicine. And if you start there with the fundamentals of health and wellness at that ground level, I don't think anyone on either side of the political aisle could contest that kid care, whatever that policy-wise ends up being in a, in a detailed way, but a, but a profound approach to nutrition, wellness, and health uh, for children is something that's apolitical and obviously where I would start if I were mm. in charge of the health care policy for the Biden administration. And I understand Obamacare did in many ways try to encapsulate all different segments of our population, but there's always more we could do to support our children. And if we had a system designed for their health and well-being from the ground up, we'd be, we'd be setting them up and the next generations up for even greater. Is, is this the type of thing that would be better on the federal level or better left up to states with we that's the- a tough call that's a tough call i don't i don't know if i haven't thought about it enough too much good question but it could probably you could argue either way well it is you know it, it just begs it goes back to education like education with anything you know you start younger you give the opportunities and that you know t- is so true too uh tim you know when it comes to our health if you're given an opportunity to you know, be educated about taking care of yourself, eating well, exercise, like all of those things, then you're automatically on a better trajectory. Well, you know what is... For the it, most part. I, and I, I mean, what, what is so frustrating to me, I guess, is, is that we spend so much money on, on treating preventative things that could be prevented from a young age. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so much money is spent in a really inefficient way because we don't start preventative care for enough people at a young enough age. So it gets to the That's point right. where they end up being... It's it is such a big cost to the system, one that is so much bigger than preventative care. Right, Alyssa, we mm-hmm. talk about this all the time, like preventive, you know, preventive care. The difference it would make in terms of the health of our population. Tremendous. It's 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 almost too extraordinary to quantify. Although I'm sure some people can, uh, but in office management and budget. But at the end of the day, it's too far, It's a two pronged approach. It's I agree with you both that it's it's access to healthcare and preventative medicine and access to information and the education that goes along with it. And so with COVID, we were so behind the eight ball in accepting that this was a global pandemic, in working through a you know major response to it, and now finally having these extraordinary pharma companies coming up with vaccines in a record 
timeline. Now we need to make sure we nail the logistics since we've stumbled out of the gate. And, you know, that's a that's an infrastructure problem that involves infrastructure, transportation, as well as health care, which I know the president will be speaking about later today. But in terms of what we need to do, it's really fundamentally that access to education and health care are inextricably linked, as you say. I mean, it's, it's, it's a much broader, broader discussion than just health care. It's, it's about nutrition and wellness and food and all the all, and exercise and all that stuff that gives for healthy little people that can grow into healthy bigger people and, and hopefully healthy adults. What is the role that that of the international community working with the United States and, and vice versa when it comes to tackling this pandemic? Because one change that yeah. we have seen with the Biden administration is the renewing of ties between the United States and the World Health Organization. Anthony Fauci saying that the country will re- rejoin COVAX. That's the 92 nation collaboration that's looking to deploy vaccines around the world. That's something that the Trump administration rejected. Um, is that the right move for the U.S.? I, I listen, I would like to think that the U.S. puts U.S. citizens first. And if Israel or anyone else had invented a vaccine before we had and it was going to be able to be mass produced here, then by all means, why would we not use our allies to help us tackle this problem? That's just, to me, obviously good public policy. And I'm hopeful that rejoining this will send us even better in that direction, if not for this one, for the next, God forbid. Hey, Alyssa, I do think about, you know, what the lasting impact of this is. I mean, how could it not all be lasting uh, in terms of how we approach life, how we approach healthcare, how we, you know, think about society and our community. But I do wonder, do we get through this and everybody is very quick to be like, okay, uh, you know, I'm going to forget about COVID. And I do think about the role of companies and employees' lives. I mean, how do you see it? What do you think ultimately will be the lasting impact of COVID uh, on things? In terms of the perspective I have as a private equity-backed CEO, I had already had a policy of people working in the office three days and home two days prior to COVID. Mm -hmm. So I was a little ahead of the curve on that. And I certainly will have maintained that policy now that people are returning to work in safe, socially distant contexts and would continue that going forward. I do think that creates nice work-life balance. And I also think you can in some ways increase productivity if you end up working from home one or two days a week, if 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 it's available to you in a corporate setting. Uh, so I think that's a good thing. I don't think business travel will, will rebound back immediately. I think it will take a little bit of time, and I don't know if it will ever resume the exact pace that it had prior to. I think leisure travel will. I think people are jumping out of their skin to get out of their homes and their, in their towns and to go back and see the world. Count me in but on that. Think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I think the business will be somewhat changed. I think that the, the piece I find most inspiring in terms of education, both in elementary from what I've seen with my children and and at the at the graduate school level where I teach, is that I do think the digitization of some elements of education provides flexibility and enhancements that aren't necessarily available otherwise. Zooming in extraordinary guest speakers from anywhere in the world, having supplemental enrichment available to children who need extra support or who are um, would have otherwise been available to a gifted and talented program or anything like that, having those extra enrichment opportunities through digital. Uh, technologies is, I think, a really good thing, and I hope it continues and expect it will. If you know, not all at home e-learning. Don't get me wrong, but additional supplemental right. opportunities, I think, are really good that were forced through the pandemic, and I hope that they persist. I've, you know, a lot of us are our parents struggling with remote learning or changes to childcare over the last while. Wow, it's almost been a year, but I'm I'm wondering as a CEO. 
how you've had to adapt your own policies to allow for your employees to make those changes. I mean, you mentioned you were ahead of the curve with, with people working remotely, but what are some of the policies that you're putting into place to allow your employees to have flexible schedules, perhaps to make sure that childcare and, and family care is available? Yeah, well, it particularly impacted a couple of our executive team members, one male, one female, with infants born during the pandemic, and they would have normally been on more traditional six or 12-week mat or pat leave, and because of the pandemic, they have done a six, now I'm going to end up being 12-month work from home. And I know in some Scandinavian countries that's more typical. That certainly wouldn't have been something I as an employer would have gravitated toward between us prior to the pandemic. And now that I've seen it work, I don't necessarily, and I had to do the running around the world with a breast pump and an infant on planes, trains, and automobiles as a CEO uh, once before, I don't think I would object to working parents choosing to spend three months or six months working from home with an infant versus coming back in right away. I actually think that that is probably really good that's for so, family lives and very that, accommodating. That's a big deal. That is a big yeah. deal. I mean, that's a, it's really fascinating to hear that because it's sort of this hybrid model if we think about it moving forward, right? It's not paternity leave or maternity leave. It's, it's like working from home. Right. Mm-hmm. which would obviously you still, you know, I have a two-year-old, so, I'm, you know, it's like you still need childcare right. while of you're course. working. You're not going to be able to of work course. with your kid there, but being home makes a big difference. Well, and then you can be getting, you know, childcare. My younger brother has a one-year-old as well is in the same boat. You can be getting childcare, family care uh, with nanny shares or grandparents yeah. or even babysitters, et cetera, where it's, you're still, you don't have to add in the commutes and the other risk factors to it. And I'm not yeah. suggesting that's available to all companies, but right. where it is available, I think it is something worth considering. Yeah, I've heard from some, you know various folks that say, you know, CEOs are going to have a reckoning. They should just kind of own it right now and just say, listen, we're going to embrace hybrid because this is what people want. They, it, you've seen it. I mean, some people can't go back to work, but there's a lot of people who don't. They are productive and they enjoy it being at home and it works. Um, Alyssa, thank you. Thank you. As always, uh, a great deep dive there on all things and uh, surrounding COVID and the coronavirus. Alyssa Rapp, she's CEO of the healthcare solutions company, Surgical Solutions, on the phone from Deerfield, Illinois. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. As we said earlier, it's the year ahead issue, asking questions about when does the new normal begin, looking at the return of big government, and whether 2021 will be worse than 2020. You know, Tim, earlier you talked about the cover, uh, and it's just a lot of things that are going on. Yeah, I love it. Joel joined us on on Quick Take earlier today and said they went full tablet on the cover, and it's one (laughs) of my favorites. It's a favorite issue of mine every year. Um, Joel is with us, Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the Access Line in Brooklyn. So too is Bloomberg Business Week economics editor Peter Coy, who writes the introduction to the issue and asks just how hard it will be to put 2020 behind us. And man, Joel, we cannot wait to put this year behind us, but I'm a little nervous about what's in store this year? Well, that's why we tried to be slightly lighthearted and go with this tabloid uh, look, which really just started with us asking a bunch of questions. And as we kept asking questions, I kept adding exclamation marks. I think the big debate on the staff is whether 2021 is the year of the exclamation mark or the year of the question mark. Um, Right now, it feels more like the latter, just tons of questions. And as we started um, asking those questions, though, we, we did, I mean, it's you know, the tabloid thing is fun, but we, we take this very seriously and we tried to just pack it full of as much useful information as we can. That's where Peter came in with the intro, obviously. And, you know, I think the real takeaway, Peter, is 
you know, our economic outlook is basically um, wedded to the number of vaccinations that um, the U.S. is able uh, to do. And, and that goes for the rest of the world as well. So what, what does that outlook sort of look like um, from your reporting? If you look at the GDP forecasts for the world and, and the U.S. and many other countries, they look pretty good. You would think, wow, nice, that's healthy growth. For example, for the world, uh, 5.1%, for the U.S., 3.5%. But you have to keep in mind that that's off a very low base. So what's happened is that 2020 was an awful year, and we're getting a, a, a rebound. So it looks good, but we're not even rebounding all the way back to the trajectory we were on. Uh, you know, it's, it's like, the I don't know, maybe I'm just the glasses half-empty kind of guy, but I'm not super happy about this. Oh, come on. Maybe you're just a realist, Peter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> okay, well, is there any, I mean, is there any good news? Did you find anything to be optimistic about in your reporting? No, I mean, the obvious thing is that the vaccines were developed far faster than, uh, you know, a lot of scientists have been expecting. That's a huge positive. It is taking a while to get them distributed, um, but the U.S. is actually, even though it, if you're living in the U.S., it feels kind of slow. The U.S. has is, is done a higher percentage of its population getting vaccines than most other countries. And I do believe that we're going to get our act together eventually and that this will end up being um, the year when the tide really does turn on the vaccine. The second half is going to look better than the first half. So it also looks different elsewhere in the world, Peter. Um, and one place that it looks uh, completely different is, is China, which even right. though they haven't really done mass vaccinations yet, the economy it remains to, you know, it didn't skip a beat last year. Only, uh, you know, major economy that didn't have a contraction. And, right. you know, here here we are projecting that, you know, they, they will become the world's largest economy in just a couple more years. Um, what, what, from an economist standpoint, just how, how legit are those Chinese numbers? You know, you never know whether to trust any given year, but it's certainly true that, uh, relatively speaking, they did better than the rest of the world. I mean, that's just obvious, just walking around the streets of Beijing or Shanghai, that uh, people are going to restaurants, they're going to theaters, they're Kids are going to school just as normal. People are going to work just as normal. Traveling, um, that's just evidence that they've got the virus under control through, you know, blocking and tackling, doing the basics right. So they had, uh, as Joel said, positive growth last year, and they expected to have a strong growth this year. Yeah, so, well, I, oh, go ahead, Joel, please. Oh, I was just going to ask, you know, when you when you look um, in your intro, you, you had a couple other countries that that stood out to you. What are the other ones that, that you feel um, are going to you know, be, be ones that we'll continue to talk about this year? Well, the U.K. had a terrible 2020. They did much worse than the U.S. The U.S. probably had about a 3.6 percent decline in GDP. U.K. over 10 percent decline in GDP. Um, so uh, Boris Johnson has his hands full trying to fix that and now looking so far, good so far in 2021 with uh, more lockdowns to try to suppress the virus. Um, Germany uh, has done somewhat better. Germany has a bad habit of uh, exporting its way out of its problems, building up huge trade surpluses that other countries resent, and that looks like that's going to continue in 2021. 
You know, Peter, what's interesting too, as you say, as with workers, so with companies, some businesses are never coming back because COVID has permanently changed the way we do things. And that is so true the case. Uh, And it does raise the question of like, what should governments be propping up? Are they going to be propping up businesses that maybe if COVID hadn't come along, maybe they would have gone away um, in a couple of years or in a year versus... Yeah, so so the argument there would be, we want to protect people and there's right. ways to protect people without necessarily protecting the companies they work for. If a company does have a good chance of, of succeeding in the new environment, it makes sense to keep it alive. If its business model is fundamentally flawed because of the changes caused by COVID, then maybe it's better to let it go. What about developing countries? We've talked a lot about developed countries, mm. but I know you have some information in your most recent article about Brazil and, and some African nations. Yeah, so Brazil's getting COVID vaccines from China. Uh, Africa has a big problem in that it's just not getting the vaccines. It's it's sort of unconscionable the way the world, the rich countries of the world are hogging most of the vaccines for themselves when in some ways the developing world is more vulnerable, uh, more susceptible to the virus. All right, we're going to leave it in that note. It's a great read and it really sets up uh, the whole issue, the year ahead issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. Um, thank you so much. Bloomberg Business Week economics editor Peter Coy writing the introduction in this week's issue, which is online on the Bloomberg and on newsstands right now. And of course, our thanks to Business Week editor Joel Weber on the access line in Brooklyn. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio. In the meantime, we want to get to a guest that unfortunately got cut short yesterday on Inauguration Day and so delighted that he could join us again. Uh, I said yesterday he's an award-winning journalist. He was a communications consultant, worked for both of Barack Obama's presidential campaign. He has taught uh, as a guest speaker uh, at Stanford, NYU, digital media producer who has worked with David Bowie, Britney Spears, many others. Spencer Critchley is managing partner at the marketing agency Boots Rouge group his book out this year patriots of two nations why trump was inevitable and what happens next next excuse me i'm rushing because i want to get to him spencer is back with us uh from monterey california thank you so much for coming back i know with all the news that's been breaking uh we've been bouncing around a lot um you know we talked yesterday about division and kind of where we are and i do want to look forward a little bit um spencer and how you see it and you know, how you see Mitch McConnell, who has been so key also in creating division. Nancy Pelosi has created division. How do you see it playing forward uh, in Washington? Uh, well, it's great to be back with you, Carol. And I, I, yeah, I was really enjoying the conversation yesterday, as serious as the issues are. And it's great to be able to pick up a little bit more. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think um, the first thing we have to do is reestablish this sense of shared values. I, I think that if we think too much at the tactical level, we won't get there because we're kind of lost. Uh, our dispute really takes place over tactics and policy details and charges and countercharges, and, and it ends up uh, deepening the division and increasing the loss of trust. And when you're as divided as um, so many Americans are right now, the first thing to do is reestablish shared values to reestablish trust, because people really only listen to people that they trust. And if you've lost trust in each other, it doesn't really matter what you say, how valid it is, it's just not going to be heard or you know, given any, any weight with the lack of trust. And this is one reason why I think Joe Biden was quite possibly the best choice the Democrats could have come up with for this time in history, because it's such a strength of his 
Um, I wrote a, a short piece about this at spencercritchley.com just called A Good Man, because aside from his other qualifications, and I think he's actually one of the most highly qualified on paper presidents in our history, um, perhaps his most important quality is he's a thoroughly good person, as everybody who's been around him for any length of time knows and will tell you. And leadership is not about what you can impose on people, ultimately. It's about what you can summon from them. Mm. And I think that we're already seeing, I, I don't think I'm dreaming, I think we're already starting to feel how different it's going to be when we have a leader who is summoning the best from us. Spencer, I don't know if you had a chance to, to listen to the president when he spoke uh, just about a half hour ago. We, we took it live here on Bloomberg Radio, but a couple of things stuck out to me from that. One is he, he started his remarks by talking about the people whose lives had been lost during this pandemic. Um, that is not something that we heard frequently from the Trump administration. And the other part that I mentioned, too, is that he was really direct in terms of managing expectations uh, to the American people, saying that um, we could lose uh, 100,000 more lives here in the U.S. By the, by, in the next month, which is a staggering figure, but it, it, it's a far cry from you know, comments like, this will be gone by Easter, or we're turning a corner uh, on the pandemic, when in fact, we, we weren't turning a corner. So is Biden living up to the expectations in his first 24, 36 hours as president? Yes, I think you raised uh, some really important points there. First of all, the power of vulnerability. Weak leaders often think that strength is the performance of strength, uh, that it's about chest beating um, and talking constantly about how smart you are and how strong you are and how brave you are. But anybody who's ever actually been around genuinely brave, strong people, you know, Navy SEALs, Secret Service agents, the people who are the bravest among us or you know, people who exposed themselves to beatings uh, back in the 60s during civil rights demonstrations, um, is always struck by how quiet those people are. Mm -hmm. Because if you're genuinely strong, you don't need to boast about it. Um, and being able to show vulnerability, paradoxically, is a way of building strength, because only if you're strong can you be open about your own vulnerability. And to share the grief of people and to share your own grief, is to open up your heart that way, uh, it's remarkable the number of times already we've seen Joe Biden tear up. Right. Um, well, there's empathy. And that's there's... not weakness, that's strength. Yeah. Okay, but let's, let's carry that over to Congress, where there's a lot of chest beating in different ways, <laughs> I think you might say. Um, what are your expectations, Spencer, that it, it carries over, that there's a collaboration, a community? You know, we keep using the word community, that you wear a mask because you're concerned about your neighbor or the person next to you not getting COVID, right? You really have to think about your community. Um, and when you don't wear a mask, you just don't care about your community. Right. And so what's going to be the community of Congress? Are we going to see where it's like, okay, let's figure out how do we move this country forward? Let's work together. Do we get there? Can we get there? Well, you know, they, we don't have much reason to be optimistic, unfortunately, because it's been such a scorch-the-earth, zero-sum game, I would say, since the early 90s, really. I, I think, actually, Newt Gingrich introduced a lot of this to the way Congress works. He, he went to Washington on a mission to tear Congress down and rebuild it. Mm. Um, I talk about this in my book, actually. Uh, he got the first part right. You know, he, he <laughs> tore it down, right. but he didn't do very well rebuilding it, and it's been torn down ever since. And part of what he did, and with um, support from his consultant, Frank Luntz, was introduce the vocabulary of demonization 
to refer to your opponent no longer as just mistaken or seriously mistaken, but evil, corrupt, depraved, un-American, you know, radical socialist, communist, all of this stuff. That's where that all started. And, of course, it provokes the same behavior from the other side as often as not. Um, and we can't function that way. The level of bad faith we've seen in Congress, and I, and I, like many Republicans, would say we can't pretend this is a both sides issue. It actually has been worse on the right. There have been times when the Democratic Party has been much to answer for, has mm-hmm. had much to answer for. You know, when it used to coddle racists, for example, in the plenty of blame uh, to go around. There, there has been in the past, but we have to be clear-eyed that it's not, it's not always a both sides issue. Yeah. And McConnell has, you know, what he does is legal and it's masterful, but. Does it really serve the public interest? I think really he represents the triumph of the Machiavellian theme that's been running through Western culture since the Renaissance. And, uh, you know, counterposing it has been a more sort of humane, humanitarian theme that I think Biden represents. And again, if we can reestablish a sense of shared values on basic human decency and the values, the democratic values we all share, that's where we need to start. Are you optimistic that that can actually happen? I mean, here we are just over two weeks from when people died, when, you know, this pro-Trump mob stormed the Capitol and you had more than 140 members of of Congress who refused to vote to certify the election or voted against certifying the election. I mean... Are you optimistic that we can get this return to bipartisanship, a return to working together, moving not away soon. from demonization? Not not soon at the level of Congress, which I, I think has, has become, um, too much of it has just become thoroughly corrupt. Much of the behavior we're seeing there is cynical. And you don't, there's, you can't, you know, come to an understanding with people who are operating in bad faith. So... We need to appeal to the better angels of the American people. Many of many Americans think they're serving righteousness, but have been led down the road towards, you know, as bad as attacking the Capitol, committing an evil, basically, thinking they're serving righteousness. So those people have had the worst uh, inside them appealed to and excited. Hey, so um, I, I, and, and they've been fooled. But people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, for example, are cynical opportunists who know what they're doing is wrong. They know the the election being stolen was a big lie, and they went for it anyway out of pure personal ambition. Those people, I think, just have to be held to account. Right. Accountability. Man, I mean, I'm so disillusioned about <laughs> that truth doesn't matter anymore. It, it just, I can't even figure that one out. Like, it just yeah. seems so obvious. Well, Right. I mean, it's a deep movement in our culture. I mean, subjectivism has taken over from any faith in um, an objective reality going back certainly to the turn of the 20th century. And we see it on the left as well as the right. This is a both sides issue. This triumph of subjectivism where what's true is what I feel is true. So your book, your book is Patriots of Two Nations, why Trump was inevitable and what happens next. So look Based on where we are and what your expectations are is kind of what the maybe next admit, you know, next four years looks like under a Biden administration and the current Congress, you know, what's inevitable next? What happens next in your view? Well, I'm very heartened by what we've seen already. One of the things that hit me uh, hard yesterday was, might have seemed small to other people, but when Jen Psaki held her first uh White House press briefing as the new press secretary, I realized, oh, Jen Psaki is not going to lie. And people think that it's normal for White House spokespeople to lie. It is not uh, in either party. They're public servants. The information they share belongs to the public already. They're not campaign spokespeople. They're not supposed to lie to us. Um, so she wasn't going to lie. That's a huge difference. The transparency 
on Biden's part, including the executive orders he was just signing, the openness. His, another one was his instruction to his staff when he was swearing them in, saying, if I see any of you treating mm-hmm. each other disrespectfully or without basic de- decency, you're fired on the spot. I happen to know he meant that. That's, that's a value from the Obama campaign in 08. Obama told uh, staff members the same thing. If you ever violate the, camp- the values we're campaigning on, you're fired on the spot. So do these these norms of, of, of doing the right thing, treating people with respect, do those translate from the top to uh, Americans, to, to well, members of Congress? Well, I think they will, because as they say, leadership is about what you summon from people, not what you impose on them. And the model of strength as opposed to dominance um, that we've just lived through four years of as opposed to service. It's like wanting, what we're about to live through. It's like wanting to make your parents proud, right? Like it's just doing the right thing. And it feels better. It, you know, and this is not a partisan issue. Most no. Americans by far want to do the right thing. They would much rather live in a world that's not this Hobbesian nightmare of dog-eat-dog where you can't trust anybody and only the strong, only the winner matters and everybody else is a loser. They'd much rather live in a world where people are basically good to each other and and share that sense of unity over the the core values of democracy. Now, that said, that's not going to do it by itself, because we do have people who are just operating in bad faith, like, as I say, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Kevin McCarthy, in my opinion, there's a, there's a list of them. Uh, and I think those people need to be held to account at the ballot box, and where mm. they've actually broken the law, like the Capitol insurrectionists, they need to be arrested, and they need to go to jail in, in some cases, in some cases for a very long time. Over the longer period, I think we're going to need to, as a nation, go through a truth, truth and reconciliation process the way South Africa did after apartheid, mm. uh, Northern Ireland did after the Troubles, and Germany did after World War II, and which we should have done after the Civil War, but right. never did. And instead, we created a, a romanticized mythology of the South and the lost cause instead of confronting the shame of slavery. And we've never really gone through that the accounting for the Civil War uh, which doesn't have to be focused on retribution, right? But right. it needs to be focused on recognizing the truth like adults and accepting what we've done wrong, whoever has done it. And once we've done that, once we have stopped spinning fantasy realities, but actually are able to be mature enough to look at reality itself and move forward from there, then we'll have the true reconciliation. But that, I believe, is beyond what Joe Biden or anybody, one person can do, and right. is going to take... Uh, quite possibly decades, certainly years. Well, right, but it's it's you've got to first acknowledge it and admit it and get it out there. Um, what a thoughtful conversation. Spencer, thank you so much for coming back. We really appreciate it. Spencer Critchley, managing partner uh, at Boots Road Group. Uh, check out his book, came out this year, Patriots of Two Nations, Why Trump Was Inevitable and What Happens Next. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. And man, we all got a kind of kick in the pants there because Intel expected to cross after the closing bell. It came out just moments ago. Stock is up more than 8% here. uh, Just with uh, about 11 minutes to go in the trading session. Tim and I have got the numbers. Intel raising its 2021 dividend by 5%. Fourth quarter adjusted EPS, a buck 52. That 
is 41 cents better than what Wall Street was forecasting, sees 2021 revenue, uh, 75.3 billion. That too is above the estimates of 70.4 billion. Uh, Tim? Hey, we talk about guidance being a big driver when it comes totally. to the way that the market responds to earnings. And this is guidance that uh, investors certainly wanted to see. Yeah. Um, revenue, Full year and first yeah. quarter. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Intel sees 2021 revenue at 75.3 billion, Carol. The big beat versus estimates of 70.4 billion. Uh, fourth quarter revenue coming in at 18.3 billion versus estimates of 17.5 billion. Uh, and then you hit that EPS number. Um, do that one more time because uh, it was another beat. Uh, Adjusted EPS, I should say, a dollar ten versus ninety-five cents. Yeah. So what's That's interesting is we're seeing beats certainly for the current fourth quarter and its outlook in terms of revenue numbers for the first quarter in twenty twenty-one. Intel twenty twenty-one adjusted EPS forecast uh, reported in ERA. So we just want to make sure that that's clear. Anyway, investors are reacting pretty strongly. Stock is up seven uh, percent as we speak. We know they've got a new CEO that came in, uh, and there's been some changes and concerns about some of the strategy going forward. So uh, certainly this. Is a stock that's on our radar. Uh, we want to bring in our market guest. Bob Dahl is with us, Chief Equity Strategist, Senior Portfolio Manager at Nuveen Asset Management. He is with us on the phone in Princeton, New Jersey. Um, Bob, great to have you here. Thanks for being patient because that kind of surprised us <laughs> a little bit. Intel coming out. Um, let's start there, though, with earnings. We've heard from the big banks. We've heard from some big players. Netflix, uh, that stock really took off today as a result of the earnings yesterday after the close. Um, how does the earnings season feel so far for you and maybe what it's telling you about where corporate America, at least those big companies, those publicly held companies, how they're doing? Uh, Carol, they're coming in very well, as you know. Uh, mm -hmm. Coming into the quarter, the consensus was that earnings would be down 12% year over year for the fourth quarter. And I was saying, ah, probably half that, minus six. I think they're going to beat mine. We may actually get flat to up earnings in the fourth quarter. No one would have thunk it not that long ago, which tells us the underlying economic growth is good. Um, corporations are managing their costs well, and we're setting up for an improving economy on the basis of the vaccines and a further reopening, and the earnings will be off the charts this year. How do you how do you reconcile that though with uh, the fact that millions of Americans continue to struggle? I know the stock market is not the economy, but hey, you need if you are running a, a business, you need people to be able to afford to buy the products, and so many Americans are, are struggling right now. How do you reconcile those things? Yeah, you know, so so the the thinking is that Americans have saved a trillion and a half dollars above what they normally would have saved in twenty twenty. And when you say that, you're talking about some Americans. I mean, really, the wealthiest Americans, not the ones who've been no, laid no, off. No, no, across the board. No, right. I, I know, board. I know, every, but but if you look at the proportion, every, every income cohort savings rate is up. There's not an exception. Wow. And they've gotten that that those savings from three places. One, the government's mailed some checks. Two, some people wanted to spend money on things, but they couldn't because it was closed, as you just pointed out. And three, uh, some Americans have been scared, hiding under the covers, as it were. And when the uh, economy opens up again, they'll spend some money. So I don't know how much of that trillion and a half gets spent, but even if a small percentage does, that's a nice tailwind for, for our economy. You're right. We've got to get through these next few months till vaccines come on a little bit more, till we get more drop off in cases, et cetera. Uh, but uh, I, I, the market is certainly looking through that, and I think appropriately. So does that mean we don't need any more stimulus in your hand or uh, any more relief packages? 
So, so my, my view, view is there's me. so not your hand. Yeah, my view, <laughs> <laughs> there, there's so much unspent money, billions on the sidelines, uh, that we ought to see how that goes before we do yet another bill. But uh, I'm probably in a minority there, um, and we will get another stimulus bill most likely uh, here in the next couple of months. But to be fair, um, and Bob, we talk about this a lot on air that, you know, and I think this is what Tim was trying to get to as well with you, is that there are a lot of Americans that are just barely eking by. I mean, we were doing a whole story yesterday on the minimum wage. And even if you go up to $15 an hour, it's not a lot of money for a family of four. It's like $31,000 a year. There are a lot of Americans who aren't in the stock market who don't really have any kind of pad. I mean, there is this real division within our society and our economy. And I do wonder about, we're starting to, I think I feel like we've seen it politically, the longer term impacts of those divisions. There's no question COVID is the only accelerate that difference that you correctly point out. So what I would like to see if we're going to do a package is let's get the money to the people who aren't working, mm-hmm. who they were, they were laid off and their business is not back, back yet. Rather than giving it to a whole bunch of people, many of whom are working, let's target it to the people who really need it. I'd be in favor of that. Bob, I want to get to some of the predictions that you have for the year. Um, look, you have laid out 10 predictions that our, that our producers got to us. Um, I want to talk about number eight that you have, U.S. federal debt rising to more than 100% of GDP on its way to an all-time high. A lot of debate about whether or not people should actually care about those rising levels. Um, what are your thoughts? You're absolutely right, Tim. The reason it hasn't mattered and people haven't appropriately cared is because interest rates have fallen faster than the debt has gone up. Therefore, interest expense as a percentage of our economy has dropped. And that's why it's not an issue. It will become an issue when debt is going up and interest rates are going up. And then we'll see that, if you will, double whammy. So there's no question we're borrowing from the future, but payday has not yet come. I got to ask you about the run-up that we see in stocks. And I mean, we can talk for hours about the disconnect between Wall Street and Main Street, which is an important issue to talk about. But I want to talk about at the run-up where it feels like doesn't matter what's going on. Here we are in a global pandemic, and it's really bad. Um, all right, we got to run. Bob, we're going to get you back soon. Bob Dahl over at New Veeam. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.